0: A reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. You duped me, O Lord, and I let myself be duped. You were too strong for me and you triumphed. All the day I am an object of laughter. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I must cry out. Violence and outrage is my message. The word of the Lord has brought me derision and reproach all the day. I say to myself, I will not mention him. I will speak in his name no more. But then it becomes like fire burning in my heart, imprisoned in my bones. I grow weary holding it in. I cannot endure it. Verbum Meanie A reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, your spiritual worship. Do not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God what is good and pleasing and perfect. Verbum Domini
1: Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer greatly from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord, no thing no such thing shall ever Happen to you? He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle to me. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit would there be for one to gain the whole world then forfeit his life? Or what can one give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in his Father's glory, and then he will repay all according to his conduct.
2: My father was not raised Catholic. He was raised in the Moravian Church which is one of the oldest Protestant sects that predates even Luther and Calvin. You know, whenever I tell people that, that he's from the Moravian church, they'll ask, you know, what is that? And it actually predates a lot of the uh, Protestant reformers. And my father became Catholic much later in life because he was a seeker after the truth. He read all sorts, he read the Bible daily and was an avid reader of all sorts of biblical, Christian, evangelical literature. And his small library of books was made readily available on his bookshelf to anyone who was interested. And I remember looking at these books from time to time, you know, just looking at the covers, and taking one every now and then to either read it or just kind of flip through it. And most of the books were written by Protestant authors or evangelical authors, except for two. One was The Imitation of Christ, and the other always grabs my attention due to its striking cover. It featured a work of art by the Spanish artist Salvador Dali, and depicted Christ on the cross, but with a perspective looking somewhat down on the cross from above you're seeing the crucified Christ from above. And the book was Life of Christ by Archbishop Fulton Sheen. And although I was always drawn to this book, I never picked it up to read it until becoming Catholic. I never even realized that Fulton Sheen was a Catholic until I came into the church. So I was surprised that my dad actually had a Catholic book in his library. And it remains one of my favorite books on the life of Christ ever written. And Bishop Sheen writes about the life of Christ with the specter of the cross extending over his entire life. That the cross was there even right from the beginning, from his birth. Sheen writes in the very first chapter of his book, every other person who ever came into this world, came into it to live. He came into it to die. And with respect to today's gospel reading, Bishop Sheen writes, The cross was the reason of his coming. Now he made it the earmark of his followers he did not make Christianity easy, for he implied not only must there be a voluntary renouncement of everything that hindered likeness with him, but also there must be the suffering, shame, and death of the cross. They did not have to blaze a trail of sacrifice for the sacrifice themselves, but merely to follow his tracks zealously as the man of sorrow. No disciple is called to the task that is untried. He had taken the cross first. Only those who were willing to be crucified with him could be saved by the merits of his death, and only those who bore a cross could ever really understand him. Our weak, fallen human nature recoils at the thought of suffering. The more that we are given over to the pleasures and the sins of the flesh, the more likely we are to run away from suffering as quick and as easily as we can. And ordinary human beings do not run headfirst into suffering, but they do everything they can to avoid it, including building up all sorts of defenses, whether physical defenses or psychological defenses. Out of our irrational fear of death, we commit horrible atrocities, such as embryonic stem cell research, in order to preserve our own lives. Rather than sacrifice ourselves, we sacrifice the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, the elderly, and the unborn. Yet suffering and death are themselves punishments inflicted upon us in this life, owing to original sin and our own personal sin. No matter what we do in this life, all of us are going to experience these things, suffering and death. It's part of the package because of our sin. They are the price that we pay for sin. Yet both are entirely meaningless in this life without a deep abiding sense of trust in God and knowledge of his love and mercy. We cannot make sense of suffering and death without knowledge of the cross. Jesus shows us through the cross that the way to eternal life is not by gaining or conquering the world but by giving up our own lives. Jesus is the son of the living God and has all the power in the universe. He could wipe out his enemies with the snap of his fingers. Yet he chooses the lowly, meek path of humiliation, suffering, and death. He proves his love for us once and for all by giving his life on the cross for our salvation, thus calling all Christians to take up their own crosses and to follow after him and not to expect anything different. Peter had recognized Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah by the grace of God and so he was given the authority of the papacy Yet he still had only the thinking of mere human beings and had not yet put on the mind of Christ. As St. Paul says today in Romans, do not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Peter perceived Christ in a human sense, a merely human sense, as a mighty conqueror rather than in a divine sense as a mild redeemer. He still had not learned that spiritual enemies must be combated with spiritual weapons. Such enemies wage war in our interior life and they tempt us to sin. That's what really hurts us in the spiritual life is sin. These enemies are not overcome with physical warfare, but with humility. Christ does not exert his lordship over others, over his people, but rather he serves his people. And since Peter is not thinking according to the divine mind, his rebuke of Jesus poses an obstacle to Jesus. It poses an obstacle to God's will. And the Greek word for obstacle in this case is skandalon, from which we get the English word scandal. A scandal is literally a stumbling block that is meant to trip someone up. And so Peter is supposed to be at the service of Christ, and yet he acts in a way completely opposed to Christ, tripping Christ up which is akin to Satan, Christ's adversary. And so after issuing a stinging rebuke to Peter, calling him Satan, Jesus explains to his disciples that the cross is the only way to salvation. Not through physical conquest, but the cross. And if Jesus is going by way of the cross to gain our salvation, then his disciples should expect to choose the same path out of law for Christ. If the cross is good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for his followers, for his disciples. Jesus clearly teaches that the way of the cross is a choice which we take up out of our love for him. We freely choose it. And in freely choosing it, we then receive the reward. But we have to choose the cross. That's the paradox. He says, whoever wishes or wills to come after me. You know, we can always choose the easy life. That's always an option that's before us, to choose the easy life, to try to make a lot of money, gain a lot of power and prestige, surround ourselves with all sorts of luxuries and pleasures and try to avoid as much suffering as possible. That's always a a choice in this life. Yet none of these things can buy eternal happiness. Just ask those Hollywood actors who have everything and end up committing suicide. Worldly riches and power and prestige is not everything. In fact, in the eyes of God, it's nothing. At death, we lose all of these worldly things, and we have nothing more to show for it all. So the pursuit of the world ultimately leads to condemnation we end up condemning ourselves by pursuing the world. Hence, it is only through denial, self-denial, taking up one's cross and following Christ that one finds one's life. This requires faith. In other words, it is not through running away from suffering but by embracing it in union with Christ, that we are saved. And when we willingly join with Christ in his sacrificial death, and we unite our suffering with his, we cooperate in bringing grace into the world. We bring God's divine life into the world by cooperating with Christ on the cross. Now one might naturally ask, well, what sort of suffering does Jesus mean? Is it any suffering, or is he just talking about persecution as a result of proclaiming the gospel? Well, the answer is that all suffering can have salvific value if it is willingly and patiently undergone for the sake of Christ, the Church, and the salvation of souls. We Christians should indeed always be ready to suffer for the sake of Christ. But this does not mean that we will have our moments that we will not have our moments of weakness or distress. You know We are human after all. And the prophet Jeremiah shows us this in his first reading, he laments to God and pretty much accuses God of fooling him. He is an object of mockery and laughter as a result of the prophetic message that he has to give to the people of Israel. And yet Jeremiah continues to be moved by his great love for God to proclaim the message anyway. Even in spite of all that suffering, he still cannot stop himself from proclaiming the message of God because of his love for God. The word of God becomes like a fire burning in his chest and he is compelled to speak despite the persecution that he suffers. And Jesus has warned us multiple times that his faithful followers should expect suffering in this life, that we should not be surprised or dismayed by our suffering. This is the sacrifice that we render to God the Father in union with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it is for this reason that the priest, during the Mass, turns to the people at the offertory and exhorts them to pray that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. This is the golden opportunity for the faithful to exercise their common priesthood as baptized Catholics and to join their own sufferings and sacrifices with the sacrifice offered on the altar by the ordained ministerial priest acting in persona Christi Capitis, in the person of Christ the head. So at this moment, both Christ the head and his mystical body, the church, act in uniformity with each other in offering the perfect sacrifice to the heavenly father. In this sense, all of our sufferings take on eternal merit. Granted that we are in a state of sanctifying grace, that we're not in a state of mortal sin, we then receive the fruits of this great sacrifice in the Holy Eucharist and take those fruits with us back out into the world to share them with others and to bring others in to this communion into this wonderful sacrament of charity. Jesus then leaves us with a promise at the end of today's Gospel reading. He says, For the Son of Man will come with his angels in his Father's glory, and then he will repay everyone according to his conduct. With this promise, we have nothing more to fear and denying ourselves and giving up our lives for the sake of Christ. We are promised repayment for making such a sacrifice freely and willingly out of love for Christ. And regarding merit, the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches the following in paragraphs 2007 and 2008. With regard to God, there is no strict right to any merit on the part of man. Between God and us, there is an immeasurable inequality, for we have received everything from him, our creator. The merit of man before God in the Christian life arises from the fact that God has freely chosen to associate man with the work of his grace. The fatherly action of God is first on his own initiative and then follows man's free acting through his collaboration so that the merit of good works is to be attributed in the first place to the grace of God, then to the faithful. Man's merits moreover itself is due to God for his good actions proceed in Christ from the dispositions and assistance by the Holy Spirit. In other words, since we have been made children of God in Jesus Christ through baptism, we are given our inheritance to the extent that we conform ourselves to Christ. It is the grace of God that enables us to do good in the first place. Hence God rewards us for the good that we do by his grace and we attribute it to God's grace, and in so doing, He rewards us for those good works, for those sacrifices. God is not obligated, absolutely speaking, strictly speaking, to reward us, but He does so out of His generosity, and He has given us that promise. Once again, the thought of taking up a cross It's obviously not naturally appealing to us as human beings. We recoil at the thought of suffering. And so taking up our cross is a daily process of dying to oneself, engaging in daily prayer, making little sacrifices and acts of mortification throughout the day. Every day presents us with new opportunities to deny ourselves every day. That could be eating a little less at meals, if we have a tendency to eat larger portions. Not snapping back at the person who has insulted us. Not personally attacking another person for any reason, even if they hurt us first. Accepting mockery without becoming disturbed. Accepting correction without talking back or complaining making an effort to spend additional time in prayer or spiritual reading, reading sacred scripture, and looking for ways to perform works of charity for our family and for our neighbor. We need only keep our eyes open and seek ways in which we might humble ourselves. Those opportunities are presented to us every single day. And we also keep in mind the wonderful promise of our Lord, that it is those who lose their lives for the sake of Christ who will find it once again in the resurrection to the new life on the last day.